This is Need to Know. Real talk about the reality of unidentified aerial phenomena. From Australia, Ross Coltart. From the U.S., Bryce Zabel. Well, folks, let me welcome all our listeners and viewers to the 10th episode of Need to Know. You know, we ran this idea up the flagpole last December on the fourth anniversary of the New York Times reporting of the UAP issue. We're still here. Our idea then, as it remains today, is to treat our listeners like their time is valuable and to give you a 45-minute briefing on a regular basis. We've done shows about what's going on right now. We've delved into the hidden history of the issue. And while we don't pretend to know what the ultimate answer is yet, we do know enough to say that governments have for decades been telling people nothing to see here while they were taking this issue very, very seriously. Let me bring in the man down under, Ross Coltart. Ross... Every show for me feels like we are riding a tiger into a very dense jungle. It scares the hell out of me sometimes, but I know that letting go is just not an option. Look, I agree with you. It's a complex issue, this whole subject matter. And this is why what I think we're doing here on Need to Know really matters, Bryce, because ultimately I'm trying to talk to the person who, if I was sitting in a bar in Washington, D.C., and they asked me, what's all this stuff about UAPs? I'd tell them to listen to Need to Know, to NTK. So this week, my friend, what we're looking at is do no harm, the threat narrative. Is there in modern ufology an argument that whatever the phenomenon is, it's benign, that it's no threat to humanity? Or is it, as some are postulating, a threat What's the evidence? I thought today would be a good day to do a bit of a dig into that area. It's a great day to do it. And honestly, if there's just no other issue that seems to divide the ufological community, you got people on one side of the spectrum and the other, which we'll all get into uh, soon. Uh, you know, I think right now, let's let's do what we talked about. We want to bring in our producer of, of Need to Know, Rich Johnson, our man in Las Vegas. Rich, uh, <laughs> thanks for coming in. You've been with us from the beginning for all 10 of these and even before. So first of all, thank you. Well, thank you for uh, thanking me and thank you for including me on this project. I know it's something you've uh, had in your brain for a while and I'm very happy to be uh, in there digging around with you since uh, we found a way to make this happen. Uh, I'm in Las Vegas, which is a, a great place to be for this subject. Boy, oh boy, it has been. I mean, uh, if, if you ask most uh, people around the world, to sort of give us ground zero of ufology. I mean, maybe they'd say Roswell, but for the, a lot of people on the inside, they'd say Las Vegas. Indeed, we're just uh, down this road, well, a very long road from Area 51, the Nevada Test and Training Range run by the U.S. Air Force. Now, one source says it's a, a detachment of Edwards Air Force Base, which is 400 miles away. Another one says it's Nellis, about 100 miles away right here in Las Vegas. But the NTTR is billed as the largest contiguous air and ground space available for peacetime military operations in the free world. That is the uh, the public line, and they're sticking to it. And within it, of course, is the subsection we all love to call Area 51. What's with all the areas, by the way? Are there, I mean, literally, is the map divided up out there? Yeah, one of the maps I found, and, and you know, there are not a lot of them. There are all kinds of little areas at NTTR. I don't think there are full 51 of them, but I found, you know, Area 1 all the way up to Area 30 around the uh, the Yucca Mountains. And then in the northeast corner up against Groom Lake, a dry lake bed, there is, according to a map or two, 
Area 51. Mm. Closest I've ever been is up uh, Highway 95. You can see hundreds, if not thousands, of these Quonset Hut-style buildings that store munitions, part of Creech Air Force Base. But Area 51, of course, is way, way beyond the horizon of U.S. 95. It's so good to know, Rich, that you live in Las Vegas, because when the TR-3B, the, the secret UFO, is found inside Area 51, Bryce and I and all our families, in fact, all our friends can come and stay at your place. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Rich, you're a journalist as well with uh, many, many great credits. And, and obviously, Las Vegas is also the home of George Knapp, who's not only a friend of the show, I guess, but also just uh, one of the top investigative reporters in this subject forever. Do you uh, have you watched him on television when he does his local news as well? I have seen him once in a while. He retired a couple of years ago, and they had quite the send-off for him because it came around the same time as the 30th anniversary of his landmark 1989 interview of Bob Lazar, who alleged the potential link between Area 51 and aliens. And KLAS-TV became the first mainstream media outlet to report this allegation. Never mind that Lazar's resume wasn't all that great when you put a little scrutiny to it. The idea of Area 51's covert mission was out there and of course, it's still out there. There was just recently a lot of publicity about Area 51. There was some crazy ideas. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Three years ago or so, we're coming up on the anniversary of Storm Area 51, the uh, foolish notion that a huge mass of people would be able to overwhelm the Air Force MPs and force their way on the base and get up to Area 51 and find the truth. Uh, that morphed into a rock concert called Alien Stock, all things extraterrestrial in the tiny town of Rachel, Nevada, which is pretty much just a, a restaurant and a, and a motel. That whole thing fell apart. They had an alternative concert. Uh, lawsuits ensued. About a year ago, everybody settled up. Money exchanged hands, and it all got sealed up. The records mm. got sealed. About the only winner of the time was a woman named Connie West, the owner of the, the only motel in Rachel. And when it came time for Area 51, the Storm Area 51, about 150 people showed up at the two gates at NTTR. Not a big challenge for the MPs. So thanks very much for that, Rich. We'll, we'll come back to staying at your place in Area 51 <laughs> another time. Um, what I think we need to talk about is this week's news. And mm -hmm. one of the most important events that happened this week was our friend John Greenwald from the Black Vault website, who does so much good FOI research. He obtained the redacted, classified version of the UAP report that was provided to Congress on 25th of June last year. This was the preliminary report on UAPs. And a public version had been released, which was about nine pages, which really didn't say very much at all. But what John Greenwald did with great effect was obtain a slightly longer report, which was the uh, redacted, uh, as released, classified version of the UAP report. And it, it, it had some interesting new revelations, not a huge amount, but interesting nonetheless. You know, Ross, what made what it raised as a question for me is I'm looking over this thing saying, okay, if it was supposed to be classified and it went to the senators and the uh, Congress people uh, for them to look at, and it was the longer enhanced version, why was it open to a FOIA release so close to when it was given to them in a classified format. We don't typically handle classified material that way. So what, what went down? 
Oh, look, it's basically full of black redactions, to be honest, Bryce. The most interesting stuff is behind black boxes. So, uh, look, one of the things that um, uh, has been revolving around in the debate this week is is, uh, what's behind the redactions. And one of the most interesting things was that there was a section in the report that described the shapes of the UAPs that have been seen, mainly by Navy pilots and commercial pilots. And that was redacted, that was classified, which kind of begged the question, why would you have to classify something that was merely describing the shapes of the objects that have been seen? There's a couple of takeaways from the report that I thought were significant, that If you interpret the report clearly, it means that about 80 out of 144 cases that were included in the report were corroborated by several systems at once, which is very significant. Mm. They were corroborated either by radar, visual by pilots, or visual by either ultraviolet or infrared sensors, or perhaps also by satellites. And that's very significant because it explains why it's being taken so seriously. There's multiple corroboration of what these pilots were seeing. It wasn't just their eyeballs. It wasn't just their gun cameras. It was other data sources that corroborated and underlined what these people were seeing. Um, I I think that's really important, but it was very frustrating because in the end, a lot of the debate about the significance of the report descended into an argument about whether or not it was 17 pages or the 70 pages that had been suggested by some people, including Lou Elizondo. And frankly, to me, it's a kind of a silly argument. I'm not really fussed about that. The the fact is uh, they've been able to get this report released and information's been provided to the Congress that is of significance significance, notably, and as we know from last year. I don't disagree that it's a silly argument, but I do kind of wonder, do we know factually whether it was 17 pages or 70, 70 pages, or was this just somebody mishearing 17 and thinking 70? I mean, what, what's the truth on that? Do we, do we know? To be honest, I don't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, one explanation that's been offered to me is that the uh, report, the classified report that went to Congress had appendices that weren't included uh-huh. in the redacted version that was provided to John Greenwald. Frankly, we just don't know. But what disturbs me, and this takes us on to another issue that I think we should right. address this week, what disturbs me is that it's been used yet again to attack the credibility of uh, people like Lou Elizondo, who who did suggest that the report was long. Um, I think there is a kind of an expectation in ufology that essentially it's the duty of former insiders like Elizondo to give the ufology world everything on a plate and just to serve it up and say, here's the secrets, here are the dark secrets from within the Defence Department and the intelligence community. That's not how it works. And I I think this is going to be a long, slow, iterative process. And I I see no evidence that people like Elizondo or Chris Mellon aren't doing the best that they possibly can to bring what they can do to the public. You're certainly right. That's not necessarily how it works. But I think what's interesting is we really haven't had a Lou Elizondo out there before. I mean, here's a guy who ran uh, the program that the government set up for several years, many years. And then suddenly he resigns and now he's sort of, it's almost like a whistleblower, but not quite. He's resigned and now he's out there telling the truth as he knows it, but he's being somewhat coy by saying he's got an NDA, but at the same time, he's laying out more provocative things. And I think the question has come up over and over is like, will the real Lou Elizondo please stand up? 
people are just not quite sure what they should make of him. Now, I know that at the very least, you know the man. You have uh, interviewed him, and based on watching your documentary that you did last year, you've been out to, I think, his ranch, and you've gone on a hike with the man. So tell me what your assessment on a personal level of of his veracity is and, and also what you think the game he is being forced to play, uh, what the rules about that game are. There's no doubt in my mind that Lou Elizondo is genuine. He's authentic. He's, he's a former counterintelligence officer, though, working or who has worked inside the United States government. So, you know, he's, he's operating within the constraints of his security oath. There's no doubt that he knows a hell of a lot more than he's allowed to publicly let on. Um, the, the, the interesting thing is, the one thing that I did learn when I was doing my research into Lou was that he was cleared to a level inside the office that he was working from, the office of the Undersecretary of um, Defence Intelligence and Security. He was working at a level that I don't think people realise. There was a time, I'm told, not by Lou, but by others, that he was essentially a liaison uh, between that section of the Defence Department and what's called the Special Access Program Oversight Committee, which is essentially the committee that oversights all of the biggest secrets inside the US government. Um, this is a guy who really does know where all the bodies are buried. He <laughs> knows all the secret projects. And frankly, if there is a TR-3B or an Aurora jacked up on blocks in a cave in Area 51 right near uh, right near Rich's place, then it's it's going to be he who knows it. Well, and so one of the things that I, I think is the frust what's coming through at the moment on social media and Twitter is a sense of frustration from the research community that he's not being more candid than he is. I think he's being as candid as he possibly can be. Well, you, when you just said he knows where the bodies are buried, I, I immediately was taken aback because if he knows a hell of a lot more than what he's actually saying, let's review what he's actually been saying. He's sort of confirmed crash wreckage exists. He's confirmed that we have a video of occupants uh, on some of these craft. So, uh, you know, that's a lot to, to digest right there. And I have to say, uh, I've seen probably more Lou Elizondo interviews than I have of you or anyone else. I mean, this this guy uh, is ubiquitous. Uh, he's he's not turned down very many opportunities to talk to people about it, and for that I commend him. I mean, it's it's been uh, really fantastic, and and to listen to Lou uh, is to hear a man who certainly sounds like he's in the know and sounds like he is uh, you know, answering a higher calling. And yet, as you point out, uh, if you go to the Wild West, which is what you know, many people talk about hashtag UFO Twitter as being, uh, you get a lot of people who are frustrated. And I, 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 wish, they, I wish we could work this out uh, so that we could sort of focus on the path ahead. Because when, when we have to degenerate into arguing about what Lou knows and what Lou doesn't know and whether he's this or whether he's that, it seems to, um, it seems to work against the greater uh, goal. But we just haven't had in history too many people. I mean, we did, as we talked about last week, have uh, Captain Edward Ruppelt, who was with Blue Book, who was pretty outspoken after he left Blue Book, um, but he may have known more than he was talking about. I've never seen anybody who had a legitimate job 
in the U.S. government who has said things more provocative than Lou Elizondo. So if he's now, if he's not making yeah, it what, up, what, what, then God bless him. One thing that I want to address is, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I think Lou was accused by certain people on social media of putting up proxy accounts on Twitter mm. that were pushing a view that through an anonymous identity. Sock puppets. Uh, sock puppets. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, if you look, and I'm not going to dignify it with a uh, with a, uh, a, a you know a credit of naming people, but if you look at what some scumbags have actually been saying about he, or more importantly his wife, I can understand why the guy, if he did do that, was pissed off. I mean, for yeah. God's sake, you've you've had that ridiculous performance at the Oscars this week, where a certain oh. actor who I won't name. Uh, uh, violently assaulted a, a comedian for the simple fact that he was offended by what somebody said about his wife. What the hell was wrong? Even if Lou did do this, if he if he did set up a proxy Twitter account to basically have a go at the people who were attacking him and his family, what was wrong with that? Well, is there any evidence that he was sowing disinformation? I don't think there is. And he has talked about that. Just in case people are saying, "Wait, hold on, sock puppets." All right. If you're on uh, Twitter or any social media, but let's use Twitter, then you like Ross, you have a Twitter account that's at Ross Coltart. You're Ross Coltart at Ross Coltart. And I'm Bryce Abel at Bryce Abel. And and so there's no attempt to hide who we are when we make a statement. And the idea of a sock puppet is that you've created a, a Twitter account that disguises who you are. And I guess the accusation is that Lou did that. And he did it, as you said, probably because he was irritated that people were saying nasty things, not just about himself, but about his family, and he wanted to respond to it. But I haven't actually heard him state that in so many words, and I've listened to a lot of his interviews recently, so I'm just not clear on where this is going, and I I just want to assure people, uh, we're not talking about this because we think it's, you know, juicy or gossipy. I think it... If, if he was a lesser person in the whole ufology field, uh, we would dismiss it and move on. But because he's such an important and and, 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 and and needed person in trying to get to what we do need to know about this, it's important to, to sort of sort these issues out, to sort it. And, I, and even if we can't answer that entire question today, we'll stay on it. And as this evolves, we will talk more about it. Coming up, is there a threat from the phenomenon? next on Need to Know. Well, we're back and we are talking about the threat narrative, if you will. And as we talked about in the last, there's kind of a spectrum of how people view the phenomenon. Some people are on one side of it and they say, hey, look, they're they're benevolent space brothers. That's what I would call the sort of the uh, ET, the extraterrestrial version, the the scientists who are looking here and, and friendly to us. And then on the other side, you have the Independence Day crowd that says, no, they're here to do no particularly good and they're gonna blow up the White House or something. And then the truth may be somewhere in the middle in that we may have multiple things to be talking about. And that's what we wanna do today. But, but Ross, one thing I wanted to do before we got started on that is to give an example. We have said on multiple occasions on this show that. Uh, the UAP have been seen over and over near nuclear power plants, near nuclear weapons, 
near nuclear assets. And there's really a couple ways you could look at that. And I've heard it both ways. Uh, one way is on one side of the spectrum, say, people say, well, of course they're looking into our nuclear weapons uh, because they want to save us from ourselves. The reason they're learning how to turn off our nuclear weapons is that if they could do that, they could keep nuclear war from happening on Earth. And that would be a lovely thing, I suppose. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people saying, it's not a good thing if someone you don't know who won't announce their intentions or who they are or why they're here are shutting off your nuclear weapons. Uh, that might very well be a, a threat assessment on their part. So I throw that to you, my friend. I agree with you, Bryce. I mean, the, the, the simple fact is we don't know if this is extraterrestrial. We don't even know if this is uh, a non-human intelligence, for right. sure. That's that's what people like Lou Elizondo and others are suggesting it is. And interestingly, Lou gives us a good segue into what we're talking about this week, because just this week, in, in an interview with Linda Moulton Howe, he talked about an incident involving an aircraft carrier that suffered a shutdown of either all or some of its systems because of a UAP. He, he didn't say which one, but I've been doing a bit of digging and I suspect what he's talking about is an incident that took place in 1970, 1971 involving the USS John F. Kennedy uh, in or around the Bermuda Triangle near Cuba. And in that incident, the, the ship didn't lose power, but its communication systems were jammed uh, it, it went out of they went out of order when there was a sphere hovering overhead. It's not mentioned in the ship's official history, but by definition, I would have thought that something like that that involves an attempt by an object, uh, an unidentified aerial phenomena hovering over the craft, over the ship, shutting down a vital system that that ship could use to defend itself. That, by, by its very nature, is what the military would call a threat. I, now, I, would I don't think know so. why this is even a, de being debated. Then, then we come to biological. Well, threats. you know what, though? Let's, let's give just a little. I just, because I love the research that was done on this Kennedy, the USS Kennedy. And one of the things that jumped out at me is, okay, they, they not, the, the communication system gets knocked down. But supposedly, there's a... a a pneumatic tube system that also works for communications in there and that a loud voice proclaimed during this. So I, I, so I guess the communication outward wasn't working, but there was in ship communication of some kind, but this loud voice proclaims there is something hovering over the ship. All right. And a moment or two later, according to this report, another voice shouts and you, I, I don't even know. I'll just say it. The voice says, it's the end of the world. Okay. And look, wow. you, can, you can actually see these, you can see these interviews online. Uh, Stephen Greer, to his credit, did some interviews for his disclosure project with some of these people. They're named, they're identified, they've confirmed their service. Uh, a couple of them were in the communications room of the ship, and they actually ran from the communications room to the outside of the ship to have a look. And they, they actually saw... Uh, whatever this object was, a large glowing sphere hovering above the ship. And the interesting thing is, this was meddling with the systems of a blooming aircraft carrier. Price. Yes. You know, that, that, that's a nuclear armed aircraft yes. carrier, indisputably one of the most powerful weapons in the world. And by any definition, a threat. 
And these people went out to take a look at it. And just to remind everyone what they saw, they saw something that they recorded as, as what they thought was between two and 300 feet. Now, I know that you don't use feet where you are. And, you know, I don't you we've got that communication thing. So I always think in football fields. All right. A football field here is 100 yards, which is roughly 100 meters. I don't know exactly what it is in Australia. So this means that whatever was hovering over this craft was about the length of a football field or close to it. And that's a pretty big thing to have hovering over a uh, aircraft carrier. Which kind of is a good segue yeah. for another story that you and I have talked about previously, yeah. the, the RAF Bentwaters, the Rendlesham mystery. And what interests me about that case, which was an incident that took place at a nuclear base that the Americans and the British jointly operated in the United Kingdom, is that there were biological effects that were allegedly also described being inflicted on at least one of the people that witnessed this object landing in the Rendlesham Forest adjacent to this uh, airbase, RAF Bentwaters, in the United Kingdom, which allegedly was nuclear armed. It was one of the main nuclear bases in the United Kingdom. And in December 1980, when Airman John Burroughs and his colleague Sergeant Jim Penniston went into the Rendlesham Forest to investigate an object which was seen descending into the forest, Burroughs said he only saw strange flashing red, green and blue lights in a clearing that threw off the image of something that looked like a craft, but he never saw anything metallic or hard. Penniston has described in great detail actually physically touching a craft, which he had almost said almost had a sort of a smoky glass-like structure to its external structure with symbols on the side. But the takeaway from that case that has often been overlooked is that John Burroughs suffered terrible injuries. He, he suffered heart injuries that incredibly, in or, in or around 2015, as a result of the intervention of the good Senator John McCain, Airman First Class John Burroughs was acknowledged to have suffered what apparently were huge doses of radiation while investigating this matter. And the US Veterans Association, the, the VA that looks after injured veterans, agreed to pay for his treatment after John McCain successfully helped him obtain his medical uh, evidence to actually show that he'd suffered some kind of an injury during this incident. I think that's very significant. Oh. It's essentially a biological effect caused by a UAP, acknowledged by an arm of the US government. Well, you know, what's also interesting about that, Ross, is uh, it was a holiday season to remember in late December of 1980, because not only did you have that case with uh, Burroughs in the um, uh, Bentwaters case, but at the same time, literally a few days later, uh, here in the United States and Texas, we had the so-called Cash Landrum case. And, and, and uh, while Burroughs actually won his legal battle, if you will, to be recognized and treated for his injuries, uh, Cash Landrum turns out another way. I'm going to let you tee up uh, Landrum while I look up the effects that some of these people suffered. 
Okay, Cash Landrum is an amazing case, Bryce, because the, I, I strongly suspect Cash Landrum was some kind of US project. But what it involved was on the evening of uh, 29th of December 1980, which, as you say, is very, very close to the RAF Bentwaters case across on the United Kingdom. Betty Cash, Vicky Landrum, and Colby Landrum, who was seven years old at the time, were driving home to their home in Dayton, Texas. And all of a sudden, they came across a huge diamond-shaped object hovering over the road. And it appeared to be in trouble. It was emitting flame and emitting significant heat. So much heat that allegedly somebody's hand on the dashboard mm. actually sank into the vinyl on the dashboard. And the family allegedly suffered very serious radiation injuries that were measured and assessed as real by doctors. And because they believed that the US military was involved, because there were allegedly a large number of helicopters pursuing this object that appeared to be United States military helicopters, they sued the US government, as you say. And unfortunately, they lost the case because they couldn't prove that the, uh, the the object that was seen was in fact a US government object, even though they were shown to have suffered some terrible biological oh. effects from their exposure to this radiation, they couldn't prove definitively that whatever it was, it was part of the US military that had caused let's, these Let's talk about those biological effects. Uh, there were large painful blisters for one, and uh, Cash uh, went into um, an emergency room days after this because it, they didn't go away and she could barely walk and, and and had lost large patches of skin and clumps of hair was released after 12 days and it gets very specific you said a lot of helicopters there were 23 by the count of the cash lender i mean if you have enough time to count 23 helicopters you have to ask yourself uh, how often are 23 helicopters dispatched to do much of anything? But again, uh, that case was not a win. That uh, was one where the government was able to say that uh, it wasn't wasn't us, which is kind of interesting. If, it, if you're saying it wasn't us, that doesn't necessarily mean you're saying it wasn't anybody. It could be somebody. Now, this is where it gets interesting because a lot of people might be thinking, okay, those are historical cases of biological effects from UAPs. I'd like to talk about a more contemporary one. Right. I, I have a very personal friend, a very close friend, Damien Knott, who is one of Australia's foremost UAP researchers. He's gravely ill at the moment, very, very seriously ill, after he was exposed a few years ago to what he says was a UAP that essentially descended and he'd been watching it for about 40 seconds in his backyard it descended towards him. Uh, his girlfriend, Mel, was with him for a large part of the earlier part when he was filming and watching this object. She went inside. And then what he describes happened was that as he was watching this object, it essentially descended towards him very, very closely and emitted a huge flash of bluish light. Now, ever since that incident, which Damien told me about, He's got gravely ill. Mm. He, he lives in a small country town in regional New South Wales here in Australia. And his symptoms, his doctors tell him, are consistent with exposure to very weird radiation. They can't explain his injuries. He's suffering um, 
uh, horrible sort of osteoporosis symptoms where his bones are very, very brittle. He, um, he uh, has anomalous uh, MRI scans. His brain scans show anomalies, which uh, American experts that he's been in touch with from Harvard University who are involved in brain scan studies um, tell him are unusual. And this is, a, this is a person who was exposed in Australia just to within a few years ago. And, and I can tell you the symptoms that he's suffering are very, very grave indeed. And look, if there's anybody out there, by the way, who's a doctor who actually knows anything about treating people with radiation injuries, uh, Damien's very keen to hear from them. We're actually going to show yeah. in the vodcast, we're going to show pictures of what he says he experienced. But they are harrowing images for the first time people will see. He suffered blistering on his arm when he threw his arm up like this to protect himself from the bright light. And on the area of his arm where he was exposed, he suffered very grievous burns that essentially have got infected and, and, and bubbled up with some kind of infection. They're quite harrowing. It's, I've seen those photos. Uh, they are troubling. They're disturbing. And yes, we will put them up on the uh, the video version of this because Damien has told us it's okay to do that. He's he's interested in in seeking the truth here and actually also seeking help if he he can receive it. Um, I I wonder though, Ross, uh, as because we know how easy it is to dismiss things or to deflect. You go, well, yeah, something really happened to that guy, but all we have is his version of events that this thing was landing in his backyard. Is there uh, corroborating evidence of any kind that, that anything else can say, yes, uh, Damien was exposed to something uh, non-traditional out there? Well, we know from his doctors who've actually examined him that they are baffled by his injuries. I mean, how does somebody get burns on their arm from exposure to some kind of radiation in their backyard? These are really anomalous injuries. And the interesting thing about it is that if you actually look and uh, study what is being said by people like Professor Gary Nolan at Stanford University, Damien's the tip of an iceberg of people who are people involved in proximity to UAPs who have suffered injuries as a result of exposure to those UAPs. Uh, Professor Nolan, who's an extremely reputable uh, scientist based at Stanford University, has described anomalous MRIs. He's actually described how the MRI of somebody who's been exposed to a UAP is very similar to somebody with multiple sclerosis. Mm. It looks like white matter disease, the scarring. And this apparently is what Damien's been told he's got on MRIs that he's sent to doctors at Harvard University who are doing research. And if you actually read what um, Gary Nolan said to vice.com, uh, he, he actually has suggested that some people who've been exposed to these objects actually have shown um, enhanced parts of the brain as a result of their exposure to these UAPs. He's not saying that he's developed a hypothesis yet to explain what that means, but basically when you have brain differences as a result of exposure to UAPs, that's scientifically significant and it should be being investigated. But I think the most interesting thing, the most disturbing thing is that of the hundred or so patients that Gary said he looked at, 
a quarter of them died from their injuries. So, so these people who claimed that they'd had an encounter, especially pilots, were showing a decrease in neurological capabilities. And a quarter of them, Gary said, died from their injuries. And he actually linked it to uh, essentially being similar to what's being now called Havana syndrome. So, so again, yeah. biological effects from exposure to UAPs, maybe it's inadvertent, but maybe what these objects are, whatever they are, perhaps they're doing it inadvertently, but they seem to be causing health problems in some humans that come up close to them. Which is the takeaway. And as we've said before, one of the things we want to do with this uh, show is to, is to explain to people who are just coming to the material uh, what the breadth of this, uh, this information is. Uh, seeing unidentified aerial phenomena or unidentified flying objects, whichever you choose to call them, isn't just a matter of uh, bright lights in the sky. There is a physical aspect to what people are seeing. And as uh, Ross has just explained uh, in, in detail, there are literally human cases where people are injured in what appear to be close contact with technology. Now, that doesn't mean that we're telling you whose technology it is, but there seems to be a fairly strong case that somebody's technology is, uh, when exposed to human beings, very uh, harmful to their health. And that is something that uh, Gary Nolan, by the way, great interview. Uh, he's always someone who speaks very directly about this. Fascinating to hear from him. So more on this in the future as well. Let's look closer at the military threat issue of UAPs. Coming up next on Need to Know. Welcome back to Need to Know. Now, we were talking about the issue of threats, the military threat from UAPs. Is it real or isn't it? Well, one of the things, Bryce, that shocked me when I went back through the historical records is the overwhelming evidence, not just from the US, but also from other countries like the Soviet Union, of incidents where there have, in fact, been pilots lost engaging with UAPs. And back in brighter days, when relationships with Russia were, were friendlier at the end of the Cold War and around 1989, 1990, there were people within the Russian government who came forward and started talking very candidly about a secret investigation that took place within the Soviet Union, which was ordered by Yuri Andropov, who was at the time the right. president of Russia, very, very concerned about the number of incursions over nuclear facilities and the evidence from places like the place we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago by Yukovich, where a, a UAP meddled with the nuclear weapons inside a silo. And what really astonished me was the evidence that came from a Colonel Boris Sokolov, who did an interview with our friend George Knapp, the investigative journalist from Las Vegas. And Sokolov admitted that there were 40 or more incidents where Soviet jets engaged UFOs. Three of those planes crashed and pilots were killed. It's 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 amazing. And, and at the same time, this was taken so seriously, apparently in the Soviet Union, that at one point there was a standing order that UFOs were not to be fired upon because they had fired upon uh, these UFOs before. And as they explained to their pilots, uh, there was a, a tremendous capacity for retaliation. So it, it, it's 
clearly been something that that not only have has the United States and also Australia and other countries taken uh, interest in, so has the the Soviet Union and also Russia. Now, I think the thing that uh, that we ought to be able to say about this, uh, even though incursions have happened over decades, any incursion in a military sense uh, that is unexplained, where you don't know exactly who it is and you, you're not familiar with exactly the technology that's there, you have to say it's a national security issue. Maybe it's not a national security threat, but you got to say that's a national security issue. That doesn't make you a warmonger or a, a, a someone who's just out pushing a narrative about threat. It just makes you aware of what, what has been reported. So let's talk about a case where I think it's very, very clear that it's a national security issue. And it's not in America. It's not in the Soviet Union. It's in Brazil. And it was called Operation Prato, Operation Plate. And it's astonishing because it shows, essentially, it's a series of investigations done by the Brazilian Air Force as a result of complaints from locals in an area called Calaras in northeastern Brazil in the 1970s, around 1977. And all these people have gone on the record. There was a, a Lieutenant Colonel Urangi Holanda in the intelligence service of the Brazilian Air Force who was asked to investigate in this Operation Prato claims from numerous people from 30 villages in this Calaras area who claimed that they'd been burned, temporarily paralysed by beams of light. And there were also claims that at least two people died from these attacks from craft that directed beams of light at people on the ground. These are incredible allegations, I know, but they are being made by former members of the Brazilian Air Force who were directly involved in these investigations. Brazil, over the years, has been uh, kind of a hotbed of UFO activity or at least interest in reporting and reasonable investigation. You were mentioned, uh, Ho 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 I think it's probably Hoyanda or, or whatever, but here's a man who goes out to investigate it. He sees some of this stuff himself. So in other words, it, and they, and they well, as well, yes. they photographs and they saw a structured craft. They talked about one that was a 30 meter disc that ho hovered overhead. He and his men, uh, but, but I think there's another aspect to his investigation. That's also equally disturbing, which is it wasn't all just lights in the sky or structured craft in the sky. These are things that they witnessed going in the water and, and, and the blue lights traveling quickly under the water. It, it, it was just crazy stuff. It's funny, actually, I'm, I'm very excited to see that my friend and colleague James Fox is coming out soon with his new film, which has been investigating a lot of these incidents in Brazil. Uh, he's apparently made great headway in trying to get to the bottom of these sightings and finding some of the Brazilian investigators who were investigating these claims of harm to human beings. His film's coming out later on this year. There's, there's some amazing stuff in Brazil, and I noticed the Brazilian government, um, the parliament has actually also agreed that it's going to have a public inquiry, an investigation into UAPs. How interesting it would be, Bryce, if some of the more interesting revelations about UAPs didn't, in the end, come from the United States first, 
but in fact from countries like Brazil and perhaps the former Soviet Union, Russia. You know, it, it, you know, maybe uh, when I'll tell you what, as we we were talking about this, the one thing I realized is we've uh, only we haven't even scratched the surface of the Soviet Union cases. There's so many of them, and we both, as you said, talked to George Knapp, who's been to the Soviet Union and talked to some of these people about it in, in the day, and and they're fascinating cases. And the same with Brazil and James Fox going down there. A lot of cases I remember. Um, a few years back when Rich Dolan and I were writing the book AD After Disclosure, and we were trying to think to ourselves, well, what are the, what are the things, uh, the, the, the events that would have to happen that might cause a, a global exposure uh, to the topic that would lead to an acknowledgement that we could tentatively call disclosure? And one of them was, uh, we simply said to ourselves, it doesn't have to be just the United States that leads. It looks like the United States has been leading all these years. But let's face it, if Brazil were to just say, we don't care, we're just going to tell people what we think we know and lay out before the world the case of just what's happened in Brazil, uh, it would probably start a dialogue that would ripple worldwide and cause countries and governments all over this planet to have to be accountable for some of their own cases. So uh, I, I always look at these international global cases as things that are just waiting to catch the public and, and go further. Now, Bryce, one thing I got slightly wrong in uh, the last show we did was when we were talking about how the former sp French spy boss, Alain Jullier, had said that he was aware of reports of underwater submerged objects travelling greater than the speed of sound underwater. And I said that that speed was the equivalent of travelling five miles in one second. I was wrong, and my good friend Ivan has pointed this out to me. What I should have said was that while sound travels faster underwater, it's not five miles in one second. In water, depending on temperature, water density, and depth, it's approximately four times faster than the speed of sound in air. So it's approximately four miles in 4.7 seconds. Suffice to say, it was extremely fast especially considering oh. uh, Alain Julier is saying it was greater than the speed of sound. Well, first of all, I like that we do make corrections, and, and I'm sure that correction you've just made is, is welcome. But I want to underline for everyone, even the correction, let's go back to this correction, four miles, 4.7 seconds. Now, we can all pretty well count to five. Let's do that. One, two, three, four. Five. Can you imagine something in that period of time going four miles underwater? Underwater. Underwater. And, and the thing about it is, since we ran that segment, I've had more correspondence with people from, shall I say, navies, not just the Australian Navy, but other navies around the world. And they've told me that they are aware of these objects known as USOs, underwater yep. submerged objects. Uh, and essentially, these rapid speeds are a matter of record, I'm told, in the archives of your Navy in the United States, and allegedly mine here in Australia. So there's definitely mysteries there. Oh. That we need. We, to we have not heard into, the, my friend. We have not heard the last of uh, underwater vehicles. Uh, we call them transmedium vehicles in the in the trade, I guess, because they seem to be able to transfer from space into atmosphere into water, and that's pretty 
uh, troubling. And by the way, I just want to throw out, just to come back to Brazil for a second and underwater and tie this all together. There's a Brazilian general, Alfredo Uchoa, who uh, investigated a lot of these things. And this is a quote that this guy laid out. This is why I say, if the Brazilians decided to just start talking about all the things they've turned up over the years, here's quote is, well, uh, others don't care about us. They are indifferent. They want to study our planet, our living conditions, our animals, our plants, and so on, without paying any attention to us as responsible men. So sometimes they can be aggressive. So, I mean, wow. we are just, we're in the middle of an evolving story that is hard to get your hands around, and we're trying to, and that's the purpose of the show, and we'll just keep doing it until we get it right. And if you want to hear any of our previous podcasts or vodcasts, you can go to www.needtoknow.today and you can listen to all of our now 10 episodes. But believe me, Bryce and I will be back soon with even more on Need to Know. Happy 10th, everybody. And uh, remember, we can handle the truth. People get ready.